We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How many points did you score just, just for kids? 31. 31.2. 30, 31 total points this entire career. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. What's going on? Welcome back to another episode here of Setting the Pace on PacersTalk.net. And today is a very special episode as we reminisce and look back at the rebirth of the Indiana Pacers and how they have become the powerhouse of the you know Central Division, so to speak. And joining me today is Brett, who is just a guy, Evans, and Ryan, leading scorer at Calvary High with 31.2 points per game, Lloyd. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. How's it going? Good, hey, man. Alex. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So, Brett, just a guy, I want you to go ahead and just kind of introduce yeah. yourself, let fans know uh, why you want to come on this podcast today and talk with us about some Pacers basketball. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, so it, it's funny because uh, Lloyd and I come from, we were just kind of talking about how your demographic um, is is a little younger, right? And uh, I know you have some folks that listen to the podcast that, that maybe go even as far back as the ABA days, but um, we were talking before the show and you were mentioned that most of the guys that listen to your show, they remember those, those Reggie teams, like, like post 2000 teams, right? Like going up against, going up against the Pistons and the, the half court ish shot that Reggie hit th- those kind of teams. Um, but you may not remember, uh, for example, Reggie in, in his prime in those teams in the early mid to late nineties. Um, and, and really what happened uh, in the city um, as, as a rebirth, what happened there, because obviously the ABA Pacers were, were such a, a stalwart and, and honestly legendary franchise. And then when they went to the, the NBA, they went into this, these kind of dark ages. But 
I don't think people realize the impact that the, these early 90s uh, Pacers teams had on the city, on, on basketball, and, and really the Pacers haven't looked back. So I thought it'd be kind of cool to, to get Lloyd and I uh, on here and, and talk about those early teams, what transpired, what happened, um, what was happening in terms of affecting the city, and, uh, and why we are where we are today in terms of a marquee franchise. Yeah, Lloyd. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, Ryan, to hear your thoughts on everything. I know you've been a big fan for a while as well as Brett. So go ahead and just kind of take us through those, you know, struggles of the eighties from the ABA days to the NBA days and then how the Pacers got to where they are now. Yeah. Thanks for having us on Alex. Uh, you know, the genesis of this conversation really started on a, a text thread we're all on uh, where we just talk about Indiana basketball and um, yeah, uh, Brett and I have been friends and known each other since we were kids in earliest days. And then, of course, we knew Alex, too. We're a little older than Alex, but knew him uh, from being uh, kids. And um, yeah, the, you know, really the 90s Pacers teams um, are always going to be celebrated and uh, valued by Pacers fans. But unfortunately, I think nationally, just because we only made one finals and technically that wasn't even in the nineties. It was June of 2000. Um, never won a championship. Um, you know, it may be an underappreciated era and team, even though uh, we were making the Eastern conference finals seem like, uh, what do we do? I think we made the Eastern conference finals. Uh, it helped me out, Alex. Was it uh, uh, out of the 20 year span from 94 uh, or out, out of uh, uh, 94 to 14, I think we made the uh, East Finals, oh, goodness, eight times, I feel like. I don't, I, you'd have to look it up for That's me. But, yeah. I'm, not, I'm uh, not sure, but, but I can look it up. Yeah, but anyway, so those teams were, were year in, year out contenders. And, um, and it does, Brett pointed out that it came, on the, uh, uh, came out of a time of, of being a dark time for so long course the Pacers had the success of the ABA but then coming out of the ABA you had the telethon to save the team and then through the 80s even though it was still a basketball state I guess maybe the, the IU Hoosiers had had everybody's um, attention and you know you had those you see those videos of MSA with the uh, rafters drapes and curtains just blocking out <laughs> fans or blocking out the empty fans and the empty seats um, and then Really, you uh, you could almost you could almost start that with an exciting team in the late '80s, early '90s, where Reggie was young. You had Chuck Person, you had Detlef, uh, Shrimp, and they started to be an exciting team, but not yet a good team. And then I remember they had a series against the Celtics. I want to say it was '91, '92. Larry yeah. Bird uh, was a little bit injured, but we really gave them a run in that first ser- that first round. We got bounced. Then we came back the next year, which would have been 92-93, and we gave the Knicks a run in that first series. Uh, that was the year that Starks headbutted Reggie. Yep. Reggie did the thing where he, he backs up like he just got hit so bad. Uh, we, gave them a, we gave them a strong run, but really the rebirth was in that first um, year of Larry Brown coaching the team, 93-94, and I think that could be where we start tonight because it was a, that was an incredible year. 
Yeah, and I just wanted to follow up. There was eight Eastern Conference Finals appearances since 1990 for the Pacers. And if you're curious, those years, it was 94, 95, 98, 99, 2000, 2004, 2013, and 2014. And yeah, so eight, eight that's times the in most, a span of 20 years. And that's the most. That's tied for the most with the Bulls and the Pistons. Uh, yeah, so that's incredible. That to, that's incredible. That's 40% of the time during a 20-year span, we were in the East Finals. Yeah. And somehow don't have a title to show for it. <laughs> yeah, so, it's interesting for sure. Go ahead, Brett. No, so th- th- I think that's a great a great segue into kind of the, that, that right there, the 92-93 the, the and the 93-94. That was the first year Larry Brown came in. And I think it, it, it changed the, cult, the culture. Uh, right. It was, it was uh, Bob Hill before Bo Hill. We used to we call him Bo Hill around here. Um, but there were some instrumental during this time before and after there were some instrumental trades that took place. And that first, that first year, we actually traded away uh, Chuck person. I believe it was that year. Yes, it was that year. We traded Chuck person to Minnesota for Sam Mitchell and Pooh Richardson. Um, and why that's significant is it not only was, I mean, Pooh was a respectable player. Remember, I think that year he was, he was somewhat injured. Sam Mitchell obviously went on to be yeah, an NBA coach. Haywood finished the season, yeah. Right, and we'll, we'll talk about Haywood in a minute. Um, but, um, but Sam Mitchell obviously was a, was a solid player as well, went on to be a good coach. But what's significant about that trade is a couple of years later, we packaged um, Pooh Richardson, who we got out of that um, Chuck Person trade, um, we packaged Pooh Richardson and a guy named Malik Seeley, who was kind of a um, he 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 was he was a kind of a high uh, prospect who didn't really develop into much. Um, but we traded them to get Mark Jackson. That's how we actually got Mark Jackson on the team, for example. Um, and then, of course, that the year before, we also traded away Detlef um, for Derek McKee. Mm-hmm. Those were two really key trades that a lot of people forget. That were that were corner pieces for those those early and mid '90s teams moving forward, those Larry Brown teams, um, and also into the Larry into the Larry Bird teams. So there were some. And if you remember, I remember even as a kid at the time, when, especially with Detlef, not so much with Chuck, which is interesting because Chuck Person was a was a heck of a ball player, but I think he even started to regress um, a little bit before we we traded him he didn't really do much in the league after that but Detlef at the time he was an all-star player and, and I believe he was an all-star even after we traded him uh to Seattle um and I remember when we traded him even as a kid I remember it being kind of a, an outrage like why are we getting rid of this this guy um but when you look at the impact uh, McKee had um specifically on defense but he even he played a key role on offense as well um that was such a key piece and then of course that two-step trade that ended up being basically Chuck Person turned into Mark Jackson. Those were savvy trades and needed and necessary trades for us to be as successful as we were moving forward. But just wanted to call those out because that happened around this time. And yeah, we did get Haywood Workman. Uh, for for those of you guys who are like Haywood Workman, isn't that the uh, isn't the uh, um, referee? Yeah, he he used to play for us, and he was actually pretty darn good player for us as well. But yeah, that 90, that 93, 94 season, that's where excitement happened. I'll tell you a little story. We can talk about the season. There's a guy named Steve Manheimer who I believe worked for the Indy star at the time. He actually wrote a story um, about that season because it was such a huge season, uh, just like a monumental season for the Pacers going to the Eastern conference finals, pushing the Knicks to seven. 
we, um, yeah, I think Lloyd has, has it right here. He wrote a book called Pacers Power. And in the back of the book, you'll actually see Lloyd and I in the back of that book. We, there was a huge rally, like a, it was like a, uh, it was actually after the series was over. It was, it was a pep rally after the series was over, which was interesting. And Reggie was there, all the players were there and we got there late and actually worked ourselves up to the front. This was, this is very close to market square arena and you can actually see us in the very, very front it wasn't there. Market square. Yeah, it wasn't like market the square. Real market square. The actual market square, the market. Is yeah. that still there? Yeah, it's still there. It's still there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyways, um, we, we worked our way up there and actually Reggie wrote a book a couple of years later called um, I Love Being the Enemy. And that same picture is in the back of his book. So Lloyd and I have a claim to fame of being in a, in a book written by <laughs> Reggie Miller, which is kind of cool. But anyways, that season was so monumental. Lloyd, yeah, there it is. I love being the enemy. He's got the book right there. Lloyd, what are your thoughts about that? That, Yeah, you got Reggie, Reggie to sign it. That's awesome. Where'd you get Sorry that for those of you not that? watching. I got that done in person at the uh, one of the car dealerships in uh, Carmel area when I was a kid growing up in Indy. I, I, uh, I grew up in Indy <clears throat> um, and uh, all that, yeah. Um, you know, I was going to say, let me touch back real quick uh, about those trades. And I think that there was, um, there was a, a uh, kind of a pivot at that time. And I don't know if it was league-wide or if it was something that Donnie Walsh began to do on purpose, but – it, so Reggie was kind of one of three uh, at the time where he was a, he was, he was a shooter. He was a scorer, but so was Detlef and Chuck. And they were really um, duplicate players in a sense. You had wing players that were scorers. Um, and what that did was it actually hurt the development of Smiths. Smiths was number two pick in 88, uh, but he really didn't make much of himself until the, until really probably when Larry Brown arrived, he put an emphasis on getting the ball in the post and kind of working inside out from Smith's to Reggie uh, because Reggie was never really a creator necessarily. He had a few years where he would beat guys off the dribble in the prime of his career, but for the most part, he wasn't beating people off the dribble or really a creator. Um, so the point is that, that there was a pivot there by Walsh to build a team around Reggie instead of just like just, just, just collecting scores and what we did was, you're, like, he tried it with Pooh. Pooh got hurt. Hay would finish the season, and he did fine. But he wasn't going to, you know, really be leading us any further. So we got Mark Jackson in that offseason. And that changed everything because once Mark Jackson got there, he, he knew how to feed big men. He knew how to set up the offense. And he would go into Smith's, and it would go out from there uh, to Reggie or whatever. So the mm -hmm. offense really became kind of a, a full complementary team. And you had a guy like McKee that was understated, could score. Uh, of course, Dale Davis was, was really a defensive guy, just kind of a cleanup around the rim, which that complemented Rick's game very well. And then of course, Mark was setting up Reggie in the back court. And anyways, it began to be a full team that could beat a team uh, even like the bulls that, that had uh, a, a star that was much better than any of our stars. But we began to be a team that when it was, it was the holes greater, the, the sum of the parts are greater. So the whole is yeah. greater than the sum of the parts. That is the way that that Pacers team was. Well, I was going to say, I, I remember just kind of reminiscing. I've been doing some lists with Kent Sterling, who is a, a local guy here in Indianapolis. And, uh, you know, he lived in Chicago for a while and then he moved to Indiana. I forget when exactly, but, 
we were talking about that debt lift trade actually on our podcast a, a few weeks ago. And he said the big thing in philosophy was that debt lift was an offensive player and Larry Brown was a defensive coach. So that's, that's why they made the trade for McKee. And, you know, obviously Seattle, with how much defensive power they had, they needed some offense to go along with Kemp and Gary Payton. So yeah. that yep. was a, a really fair trade. But another player that you guys didn't bring up on those two teams that made back-to-back Eastern Conference Finals against the Knicks and the, and the Magic when, when Michael kind of took his hiatus was Byron Scott, someone yep. they got from the Lakers. And I'm just curious because I've heard a lot of things, and I think that he is kind of one of the more underrated pacers just because yep. he was a, a veteran that meant a lot to that team. But you guys will probably remember him more than I do. So yeah. I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on those two traits or that move, I should say. So there used to be a guy in Indianapolis. This is like an Indianapolis legend. His name was Duke Tomato. If anybody of your audience remembers Duke Tomato, this was a guy that just like wrote these kind of stupid songs. And, um, and I remember one. He was on he's, Q95. Q95, yeah. yeah. The Bob and Tom show on all that stuff. And he wrote a song about, it was called Boom Baby, and he had, and, and uh, Byron had a, a, a very specific part in that song. But no, Byron was, see, that's, that was the Larry Brown, uh, that was his fingerprints. And in many ways, Larry Brown, in my opinion, was ahead of his time in, in the sense that he had some developmental players, but he knew exactly the types of vets to bring into, into the fold. And, and Byron was, was such a great six man. Byron had those great years on those, those, I mean, all-time great Lakers teams. And uh, Reggie had a personal relationship with as well. Uh, he had a personal relationship with him. Say. Yeah, when he was at the UCLA. With Magic. Yep. They, Magic he, had a legendary off-season uh, um, game that they would get together. I don't know where it was. It was UCLA or what. But Reggie was always a part of that, and he knew Byron from back then. Uh, and they would scrimmage together, and somehow Byron got recruited to the Pacers through that. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, um, you know, Larry Brown and, and, I, and I think Larry Bird and, and Rick Carlisle and, and on and on, they, they continue this tradition. If you look at the kind of guys they brought in as veteran help, um, they were always guys who were, honestly, they were, on, they were like coaches on the, on the court. I actually, I actually looked at this not too long ago. If you look at the number of, of former Pacers players who ended up becoming NBA players, or, or I'm sorry, NBA coaches, the, the list is crazy. I mean, obviously, Mark Jackson, uh, we talked about Sam Mitchell, uh, Byron Scott, obviously, is one of those. Um, actually, Randy Whitman played for the Pacers, I think, in that, like, 91, 92, or 92, 93 season. Um, so they started this tradition of getting guys to, that were kind of coaches on the, on the court um, to, to help with the younger, the younger team. And, and, man, Byron was a key – a key cog in that wheel for sure. Byron came, uh, there's a story about Byron, you know, kind of showing the young guys his championship rings too, which is kind of an overdone story. You hear about that a lot, but um, that kind of, that probably is, is what he brought. He brought some confidence. The team was emerging um, and, and kind of like we were already established, they were, they were pressing the Celtics in round one and press the Knicks in round one the next year. But then they took a huge jump to going seven games with the Knicks in 93-94. And a lot of that was um, a lot of that was Byron. I want to say he he brought a he brought more to the locker room than he brought to the floor. Even though he brought stuff to the floor. i uh, I remember in that first round against remember we knocked out the um, 93-94, we knocked out Penny and Shaq 
in the first round of that year. And nope. Byron hit a game winner from the hash mark um, nope. in, in one of those games. So he did bring something to the floor. And he had that clutch gene like Reggie did just to, to, for big moments. But he also brought that, that gravitas of, of winning championships with Magic, with the Lakers. Uh, he was only a year or so removed, two years removed from uh, what would have been a couple years removed from the 90-91 finals against uh, Jordan. So, you know, he was in the thick of that. I mean, he was probably guarding Jordan in that in those final series. Yeah, well, I you know, it's, it's interesting because I think some fans are starting to see a little bit of those 98 Pacers just because of the last dance that's, you know, going yeah. on the documentary covering the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, don't get Bulls. to that. And, you know, we've we've seen like, you know, clips of how the Pacers were, you know, how the Pacers beat them in that season. And Reggie had that nice crossover on Jordan and they didn't have yep. Pippen, you know, Pippen was kind of holding out for a little bit, but uh, a lot of people compare the 98 team, you know, they say it's the best team in Pacers history, NBA history, I should say. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind. So yeah, the, the 98, the 97, 98 Pacers team was, was the most talented um, because for a couple of re- I think that that kind of that second run, if you if you divide our runs between the Larry Brown years and the the and the Larry Bird years in the '90s, um, you know we were more talented in that second run. But really, that first year under Bird, we were probably the most talented of that second run. Uh, I'd say probably a part of it was because Chris Mullen still had his legs under him, and we were yeah. more uh, a, a more I don't know we were, even some of those guys were still young. In the 2000 team and, and the 99 team, it, I, I feel like we got closer to the championship, even though I know like the, the 99 team we lost in the East Finals, just like with the 98 team. But um, that 98 team, we pressed Jordan to game seven. From what I remember, Jordan um, had ne- had never been in a game seven uh, pressed that far with the exception of losing to the Magic when he was wearing 45 um, after he won his championship his first championship and they were down. I don't know. It was three or four minutes left in, in, in Chicago in the United center. We were up three or four minutes left. And um, I remember there was a big turning point there with a jump ball um, there about three or four minutes. And we just lost the momentum from there on out. But that 97, 98 team was the best uh, Pacers team. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Brad, any thoughts on that? Yeah, there's no doubt. It's funny because when I look back at that that 97-98 team, I actually look at that team with with a with a sense of pride. Whereas like the ninety like the the 98-99 team was a team that man that that's the year we probably could have and should have won it all. That was the Larry Johnson four point play year. Um, which you know we can go back and talk about that because we we got hosed in that in, in that series a few through a few different times. Um, that's the year that I look at and it's it's a gut punch because that's the year we 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 could have absolutely won it all because it was sandwiched in between you know the last great you know the one that you know the last the last dance uh, Bulls team and then that first that first great um, you know Lakers team with Shaq and Kobe and we, we were kind of sandwiched right there in the middle. But yeah, man, I, you look at that team, it was, and I know we're jumping all over the place here, but that, that 97, 98 team was such a, a talented team. And, and, and I, you know, I, we can kind of talk about how we got there and, and what was there. But the one thing I'll make mention of this, because the last, the last dance is playing right now. 
And I, if you look at Twitter, there's a lot of people, um, a lot of pro LeBron people that, that look at that clip of, of, of Reggie crossing Jordan over and like, oh my God, the Jordan guy crossed over by Reggie. People that don't remember watching Reggie play, he was more of an athlete than people think. He, you know, Lloyd mentioned earlier he wasn't a creator, and, and I, I think he's right. He was not a, he was not a great on-ball creator, but he was athletic. And I'll, I'll argue this. Name me a better off-ball player in NBA history than, than Reggie Miller. You will not be able to find him. Um, if you go back and watch Reggie tape, you'll obviously see, you'll obviously see uh, you know, his three-point prowess, his, you know, all the, the, he's a shooter, he's a pure shooter, there's no doubt about it, one of the best in NBA history. But one of the reasons why he was so good at that was because he, he found ways to get open. If you look at what, if you just go back and watch video, full game video, not his highlights, because they're not going to show you this in his highlights. Watch full game video of how he ran the baseline and he would, you know, what he did with double screens and, um, you know, there, there are, I can't tell you how many times he would, he would run full sprint down the, you know, down the baseline, stop on a dime, run back where he was, you know, with McKee or something like that, setting a, setting a, you know, a reverse, essentially like a reverse back screen to open him up on the baseline for a three. He, he, it, I would love to see a, like a next gen stat to show you how many miles <laughs> Reggie Miller would run in yeah. a game versus the, the average player because he was unbelievable and people forget that and also Reggie was was never known for his de- defensive prowess but he was a, he was a respectable respectable defender that attitude yeah. that he had he would get in your face um, he had long arms so he, he wasn't a terrible terrible defender too so I think people forget about that they think oh he's just a spot-up shooter I think the comparisons to Clay Tom, uh, Thompson are actually poor comparisons because because oh, yeah. Reggie was it was fierce on all sides of the ball, ran without the ball. Um, people forget that man. They don't they don't remember that part of his game. So let me say a couple things there, Reggie. Um, you're you're absolutely right. I I was basically speaking to he wasn't breaking guys down off, off the dribble very often. There was with the a ball years with the there, ball exactly. Yeah, there was a couple years where he where he had that in his game, but that was never his his bread and butter. First of all, Reggie. A lot of people don't know Reggie had a seven-foot wingspan, so he was six-seven. Uh, but he was a generous six-seven, from what I understand. He was almost six-eight. You see him up next to a guy like Jordan that was listed at six-six, and he's he's significantly, I mean, noticeably taller than him. He's and then he's you'll towers see, over. Yeah. Then you'll see him up next to a guy that that Kobe. They said he was six-eight, and Reggie's taller than Kobe in most pictures that you'll see him, and it's reflected in pictures. But then again, he had a seven-foot wingspan, so that that created a mismatch especially in an era where two guards were typically six, four, six, five. We're just talking about Byron Scott being a two guard, six, four, you know, you had a lot of guys, Joe Dumars was like six, three. He was a two guard in our division. Jordan was a tall two guard, but yet he probably would, you know, especially the wingspan, but Reggie, Reggie. Um, I love that thing that Stephen A. Smith put out recently. It was kind of, it was just a broke down film. He's kind of like educating people about why, you know, Reggie, you know, it was in the hall of fame why it was such a big deal because sometimes people will look at it and say you know hey this guy he he you know for his career he averaged whatever it was 19 points a game or something but there's reggie reggie had reggie had a, there's really three reasons i think why reggie was was special first of all was uh he was just he was just steady like he averaged i looked at this up today 
he averaged over 18 points for um, 12 seasons in a row. There's nobody, the only people that have done that was LeBron, Jabbar, Carl Malone, Moses Malone, John Havlicek, and Elvin Hayes, and Reggie Miller that averaged 18 points for 12 seasons or more. So he was just steady. So when you have like, when you see that, you know, uh, like, look, Larry Bird never did that. Uh, Magic Johnson never did that. Michael Jordan didn't do that because he retired. So these guys, he just, that's how he climbed up the scoring list. And he retired like 12th on the scoring list because he was just steady year in, year out. You have guys that are flashing the pan. They score 25 points a game, but they do that for a couple of years. And then they're, you know, sixth men shooting, you know, whatever, a, a lot. And they're only getting 10, 12 points a game. Reggie Miller, he was also the, the free throw shooting. Um, he led the league in free throw shooting four times. Uh, the only people that have ex- ex- exceeded that was Bill Sharman, which nobody's going to remember that guy. He's way, way old. And Rick Barry. So those only two guys that ever led the league more than he did in free throw shooting. Then, of course, he retired the three-point king. And at that time, in that era, it was like by a country mile. He retired yeah. like like 800 more three-pointers than Dale Ellis had. Yeah. And um, if if Reggie had played in this era of run and gun, he, oh would, my God. he, he would have as many as anybody else would. And People, so that, that – I'll say this. People forget this, but like it was funny because when Steph Curry kind of came on the scene and he's taking these crazy three-point shots – like, I think it was – and don't get me wrong. I'm not taking any way, anything away from Curry. I think what he does is special, and I think it's innovative. But I'm saying, like, all of us that, that grew up watching Reggie were like, this, Reggie did this before yeah. Curry did, man. He, I mean, I'm talking those crazy – like, those, yeah. oh, no, 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 don't shoot. Like, those kind of shots that Curry takes, and then they always go in. And yep. the, there's one there's one thing that you missed, though, Lloyd, and, and I would say there's two other things. One I already brought up, which is the off-ball – I think he was a he was an elite off ball player, but this goes without saying. But like, if clutch was a real thing, and it is a real thing, that's and, and that third point. Oh, it is okay. I, I'll just I'll just say this, and I'll let you support Go for it. it. Though. Uh, yeah, I'll just <laughs> say this. I'm telling you though, if if you were just to build a player and say the only trait they could have was clutch, and you put people on that list, you know, obviously Michael Jordan's going to be right there at the top. Um, there's, there's so many others. I think Kobe was, was as clutch as it gets as well, but you there, I'm not joking. Reggie, if, if that's all you're talking about, I'm not talking about pure traits. I'm not talking about athletic ability, all of that sort of thing. Just the clutch factor. Honestly, he's, he's, he is right that's there with, with the Jordans of the world. That's yeah. why he's in the hall of fame. Full stop. And, and people forget that, man. People don't – like, and we can go – now we're, we're kind of jumping around the timeline here. But those series against the Knicks where he scores, you know, what was it, eight points in, in nine seconds, um, where he scores what, 24, 25 points in the fourth quarter, where he's, you know, doing the choke, sign to spike, um, on and on. The, the, the last second shot against Jordan and that – which and then 98 – Eastern Conference Finals, on and on and on. He did it night after night after night, and and it was one of those things where if he missed, you were you were legitimately surprised. You were surprised. Yeah. So yeah, I I uh, I was going to say the the second point there. What I was going to make was about the three point shooting, and that he retired with somewhere around twenty five hundred three pointers, and Dale Ellis was number two, and he had seventeen hundred. So he was essentially twenty five percent ahead 
of the second guy in mm-hmm. that category. That's an incredible record. Now, again, the game changed. Ray Allen passed him. There'll be others that'll pass him because the game changed. But if you compare him in his era, he was he had the record by a country mile. The yes. third thing, which is the obvious one that everyone remembers Reggie for, and his name is synonymous with clutch. And he had so many, so many regular season um, ones, but also especially in the playoffs. And I want to cap it off with a good point, but I want to run through a few of them. 94 Eastern Conference Finals Game 5. That was the coming out party for Reggie. It was on national television. I remember where I was watching it. Game 5, that was the first time he got into it with Spike, the choke sign. He scored 25 points in the fourth quarter, 39 points for the game. He had five threes in that fourth quarter. A couple of them were from like 30 feet away. The Pacers went up 3-2, had the opportunity to come home in Game 6. We know that we choked. Then, of course, the very next year was the 94-95 season. We met them in the second round instead of the third round. He had the eight points in 8.9 seconds. Uh, you know, he drilled the three. He stole the inbound pass from Greg Anthony or pushed Greg Anthony, however you want to say. <laughs> Step back, hit another three, finished it off with two free throws. And then you just go down the list through the 90s, and you had plenty of them. I mean, even remember the game uh, in 96. We ended up losing it. There's a couple that we actually lost that Reggie – it's kind of lost to history because we lost. One of them was when he came back with those orange goggles right before the yeah. and the Atlanta, scored, Atlanta Hawks yeah, Atlanta series. Hawks. He yep. scored, he scored 16 points in that fourth quarter. We ended up losing, but it was, it was theatrical. Then well, course, you know, no, his, what, you, what you're forgetting is the reason why he wore those glasses. He broke yeah, his, his, uh, his bone, eye, his yeah, orbital eye, eye bone. <laughs> he scores. Yeah. He, I mean, like I, I remember that series back. vividly. Yeah. Yeah, it was almost like the Walt Frazier thing where you're not supposed to play yet, but you come back because it's an elimination game, and he balled out. Um, then, of course, you have 98 against the Knicks. He had some big games. Uh, I think he scored uh, he, that he scored he scored like 38 points in that. He averaged over 30 points that series. He had like 38 points in that game that we beat the Knicks. Then, of course, the 1980s finals against Chicago. He had the game-winning three-pointer on you know Memorial Day. He pushed Jordan. Game four, we went up. Well, we tied it two to two. Um, you had let me, uh, let, later in his career. Go ahead. I was just going to add this real quick. And, and one thing that people will point to is a look at certain games. I think it was a game three or four in that in that Chicago series where he had, I think he only had like nine points or something like that. What people forget about that game is they doubled Reggie the entire game and made Dale Davis and Rick Smiths beat him. And by the way, yeah. Dale Davis and Rick Smiths did beat them. And, and yeah. so, like, that's how much respect they had uh, for them. But, but continue, you're right, because if you look at the 2000 series against the Lakers, he had some unbelievable games. I think he almost – he didn't have an almost 40-point game, like a 39-point game um, against, yeah. uh, against the Lakers. So, yeah, so in the 2000 postseason, he averaged 31 points in deciding games through that playoffs, uh, through that entire playoffs. Um, he had uh, in the in the, the game that we beat, the, the we eliminated the Knicks, he had 34 points. Um, in the 2000 NBA Finals against the Lakers, you're right, he had a clinker. Well, you, you mentioned the 98 one against the Bulls. But in the Lakers series, he had a clinker in game one. He was two of 16 from the field. Uh, oh, they did the same. I'm actually, I actually was thinking about the Lakers series. Sorry, I was yeah. conflating those two. Yeah, he had like eight points in that game or something like that. But after that, he averaged 27.8 points per game in the last five games of that series. 
he had 45 of 46 from the free uh, from the free throw line. Um, then, of course, you know he had that that series against Philadelphia and Larry Brown in 2001. He averaged 36 points in that series. 2002 was against the Nets, where he had that like drive and dunk on Kmart and everybody else on the Nets. And then he hit that 40 foot three pointer yep. at the end of regulation. Uh, I think it sent it into double overtime when he dunked on. Was yep. that like? I'm going to get my – it was Keith Van Horn, Kmart. Ken, Ken Martin, Kenny Martin, yeah. Harry Kittles yeah. dunked on, like, everybody. That was, a good, that, was a good team. that was a good team, too. People forget about that yeah. team. Oh, yeah. They went to the finals, I think, that year with Jason Kidd. But th- this is what I wanted to – I said all that to get to this point right here. Reggie was very, very special when the game was on the line. And it makes you wonder kind of like, why didn't he shoot that much throughout the game why didn't he have that green light? Why wasn't he? And, and I think it was the way the NBA was at that time. It wasn't yep. run and gun. It was ball possession mattered. It was half court. It was, it was dribble the ball, get the best shot at the end of the shot clock. And it kind of reminds me of quarterbacks in a former era of the NFL too, where you didn't, you weren't as free with the ball um, that, you know, even like John Elway, he was very special. He's seen as a clutch guy too, but his coaches for the most part, they were run the ball, play safe. The last two minutes, give the ball to Elway, let him make a special play. And I feel like it was the same way in the NBA with yep. Reggie at the time. It was it was play smart, get a good look, da 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 da, and then turn Reggie loose in the last two minutes of the game. My point is this: if he dude played now in some of this run and gun style, Reggie would be an animal. That is my whole point for saying all that. Yeah, Brett, did you have something you want to throw in there? No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and and he's right. Those were the those teams in the you know the late '80s and the '90s. They had specific pieces. It was obviously more physical NBA, um, as you guys just you know as if you watched Last Dance and you saw that series with Jordan and those those series I should say with Jordan and the Pippin uh, and the Pistons. Um, it, it just it, it it was a physical league. They you know they put more value and premium on on pieces instead of players. Like today, you know, you put a Kawhi Leonard and a Paul George, and you can put a whole team of guys just like that. There you go. Reggie Bobblehead, um, you can put a whole team on the floor like that, and they could go out and win you games and actually probably go deep in the playoffs. You couldn't do that in the 80s and the 90s. You had to have a big seven-footer. Yeah. You had to have punishers like the Davis brothers. And, um, you know, that, that's why – It was chess. You it was chess. It was. And Bishop. Yep, you had to have special pieces. And so um, it would be an interesting study to see – uh, and it's funny because the, the, the NBA is cyclical, right? Because the old NBA um, back in the, and I would even include the ABA in that in like the seventies and stuff, it was kind of a run and gun league. And then, yeah. and then it kind of, then it transitioned into like a league of, of big men and, and girth and, 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 and muscle. And then it, it, it transitioned again. And, and Reggie kind of played in that era in many ways, Reggie played in the perfect era because of his temperament, like Reggie's temperament, this, you know, in this era, you know, you know, you'd get LeBron, you know, crying about, you know, his trash talking and he'd be tweeting about how he hurt his feelings and stuff like that. I mean, Reggie was a tough cat, bro. He, he could, he could, he could trash talk with the best of them, the best of them. You know, he had the Davis brothers and some of the, we had muscle on our team back in those yeah. days uh, to back it up. And um, you just don't see that happen anymore. But like, um, but we had special pieces, and one piece is 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 Rick Smith's, which I know, Alex, you've been 
tweeting a lot about him and how underrated he was. I got to tell you this, the, the, Rick Smith was, was such an incredible player, but I'll, I'll tell you the sentiment of Rick Smith while you're watching him during those era, like during that time, you loved and hated Rick Smith. It's almost kind of how people feel about Miles Turner now. Not They didn't play the same. Rick was never a great defender. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm not comparing their styles. I'm comparing the way people felt about him. You, you, you have people that are frustrated with Miles because he'll score six points one game. And, yeah, you might have a good defensive game, but they're like, well, why aren't you scoring more? They have that same feel with, with, with Rick Smith. And actually, Roy Hibbert is another good example. They, those three big men, in terms of not the style of play, but the sentiment – at the time, there were there were games where you just absolutely hated Rick Smith. There were. And then there were games where he was the reason we won the game. I mean, it, historically speaking, he was an unbelievable piece and a necessary piece in those those uh, those great teams. But, um, you know, if he went up against, you know, he was one of, I would say, one of those rare, especially during that time, he was not a big muscle center, man. He was a spot-up shooter kind of center. He had finesse. He had touch. He would. I think that's another player who would excel, honestly, in, in, in the modern NBA. And he yeah. struggled at times going up against those big body guys. Well, he needed. That's why he needed Dale and Antonio to yep. pick up them on the defensive uh, end. And a lot of times he would guard the four, and he would survive by having six or eight inches on their four. You know, because Charles Oakley. Okay, Oakley a lot stronger, but he's got eight inches on Oakley or whatever it was. Uh, if Oakley was six eight, you know, he literally had eight inches on Oakley. I don't know if Oakley was six nine, six ten, but whatever. He had six inches on the guy. Uh, but no, I think I think the reason why people felt that way, and that is accurate. I think the way people reason people felt that way is because they always compare you to where you were drafted. And when you're drafted number two overall, there's high expectations for your entire career. And and the other thing is he underperformed for a good five, six years to begin his career. Yeah. And I really feel like there was a major switch in his career when Mark Jackson came to town. No, and no knew doubt. How to, knew how to give him the ball on the block where he felt comfortable. Because before that, you had Vern Fleming. Vern Fleming was not interested in giving anybody else the ball. Pooh Richardson was kind of in the same mold. He was only there for a short time. And then Haywood, Haywood he was just a defensive guy. I mean, he came off the street and he had a lot of heart. But he, he wasn't, you know – Mark Jackson was a pro's pro point guard. He knew how to feed the big man and he knew where to give Rick the ball and Rick would catch the ball and shoot in a, in a quick second. And that was, that was, that was when he had a great run there and it was almost all of it was with Mark Jackson. I I think that Rick retired before Jackson left the Pacers, except for that little time we traded him for Jalen Rose for 20 games and then got him back. back, But, but yeah, I mean, Rick's, Rick's time with, with Mark changed his career. I want to ask you this just because we just brought up that trade, and I know I want to get back to Rick here in a second, but what were your guys' initial reactions to them trading Mark Jackson to Denver for Jalen Rose and, and getting that, that pick uh, yeah. back? I'll answer that first. I'm actually eager to hear what Lloyd thinks about it. I remember my jaw dropped. Like, I, it was heartbreaking to me. Now, I, I knew who Jalen was, and I thought – Obviously, he would be a great piece. But at the time, I mean, Mark, people forget this, too, when you talk about players. And I, I don't know if Lloyd has the same prep work that he did on Reggie on this. But when you talk about pure distributor, I mean, Mark Jackson is up there, man. He is in the upper echelon of a distributor. I, I, I think I, – I don't know where he ranks an all-time assist. I know it's got to be close to top ten, right? Like it's it's up yeah. there. He's number three or four, I think. Yeah. yeah he passed, okay. He's even higher than I thought. 
he passed Magic Johnson. I, that's all I remember. And then I think a few of these guys later passed him, like Stockton and Jason Kidd. Yeah, but he's, so he's when, right there, three or four. When I originally heard it, and, and in hindsight, Walsh and, and gang probably knew they were going to pick him up 20 days later um, or whenever it was. We didn't know that at the time, though. Um, uh, yeah. But, yeah, to me, I didn't like it. But in hindsight, obviously, it was beautiful because we ended up getting Jalen and Mark. It was a, it was a money thing. It was a timing thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, th- that was just as a kid, you know, hearing the news. It was because we knew he was he was really the heart. I mean, Reggie was probably the heart of the team. Mark was the brain of the team. He really was. He was the guy that he made everyone else succeed. Yeah, they were. So, so I, 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 I don't remember my initial reaction. I mean, that was, uh, that was, that was 95 or 96. Um, I know that those are those two years we bottomed out. There was two years that we bottomed out. Really, we truly didn't bottom out in the 95, 96 year. It was just that Reggie got hurt. And then we got bounced in that first round that we talked about. But then the next year, the team really did bottom out. And that was the year that Brown got fired and then we brought in Bird. It just, the team needed a reset. But it was in that backdrop. It was within that time that we traded Mark and then got him back. I feel like we traded him on draft night for Jalen. And then um, we got him back at the trade deadline. Trade like de- deadline, yeah. But the um, but I I I love I I love Jalen. I always did. I probably liked the experiment at first. But here here's here's what I was gonna say. The the Jalen Rose point guard experiment never worked. He grew up in Michigan. He wanted to be Magic Johnson. He wanted to be that six eight six nine point guard. Uh, because it, you know when you're that tall, you have passing windows as a point guard that other point guards don't have available to them because of your reach he wanted to be a point guard in the style of magic johnson that experiment didn't work they tried it in denver didn't work we tried it didn't work then he ended up being a point forward in the mold of like scotty pippen and he excelled mm-hmm. in that that was that it was, was great what he, yeah that was how we used him and that's kind of even when he went to chicago that's kind of how he was used and he, he was never great great player but he was borderline all-star i think he uh led the team in scoring one year like just barely over Reggie. I think he had like 18.2 and Reggie had like 18.1. So he was, he was a great scorer for us. And, and, but he, the the experiment with him as a point guard never worked out. And the fact is Mark Jackson, one of the greatest point guards of all time. Yeah, that there's no doubt about it. I mean, Mark Jackson, I just looked it up. He's number four. And I think Steve Nash has just one more assist than him uh, on the all time ranking. So, I mean, he's up there with Nash he passed Magic, and he's right up there. Let me get it back up. John Stockton. That's Jason insane. Smith. He has one more assist than Mark did? It's just one. Yeah, it's uh, – Wow. Uh, I didn't ten, realize that. 10,335 for Nash and 10,334 for Mark. That's crazy. Uh, I mean, LeBron's about uh, – he's about 8,000 away from passing him, so I don't think he'll ever catch him. Chris Paul's about 5,000 away, so I don't know. I mean, that's that's a lot of assists to rack up in the next couple of years. So I don't think Mark's going anywhere anytime soon. But uh, just as we kind of wrap this up, I know we could talk a lot longer about things, and maybe we need to do a part two of this and kind of talk about, you know, going from the 90s into the 2000s. But I, I do want to just bring up one one story here. You guys have mentioned that you want to tell a story about, yeah. some ro- about some roses. Oh, yeah. Well, let me set it up for you, Lloyd, and then I'll let you kind of – Put it home. You, yeah, you, so, you go for it because I'm not prepped on this story. I, I haven't thought of this story in ages. Oh, okay. You guys mentioned it on text message this morning, but I'll see if I can add something to it. So go ahead and you so, start it. So here's here's kind of the, the the point of the story before I tell the story. P. 
people don't realize the attitude that the team brought those early to mid nineties, you know, Reggie led Pacers teams. It brought a swag to Indianapolis that we had never had. You got to remember the Colts came in what, 83, 84, 82, 83 or four. And they, they were terrible um, up until now. I mean, like not even close to being good. Um, We had, we had nothing right. IU had, had kind of, you know, they had some good teams in those early 90s, but, you know, their glory days were behind them. Um, we, we just didn't have a lot to be proud of in terms of, you know, the city and sports and things like that. And you got to understand that during that time, Indianapolis was going through um, a change as a city as well, right? So you had Mayor Hudnett who came in and, and started changing some things. You had uh, Goldsmith came in and started changing, making – making Indianapolis a modern city and Indianapolis in, or the Pacers in a way kind of followed that, that path. It was almost like they were like a, a, like a, like an, I don't know, like a symbol for what was like this, you know, Phoenix coming up from the ashes that, that Indianapolis was going through. It was like a perfect, a perfect illustration for that. And so these teams brought a swag. I remember the swag. I remember the Hicks versus Knicks type of thing. There was just this like blue collar. I know that the modern, like a pace, the Pacers marketing team a couple of years ago had that blue, blue collar gold swag thing, but that was a real thing. Um, in the nineties, there was a swag that was, that was in the city that we had never really had before. And, um, there was one cool story because we knew, um, you know, if, if Reggie was mad, if Reggie got ticked off, um, you knew he was going off for 40 points and just going to be an adjutant, right? Um, I, and by the way, when I say adjutant, it just dawned on me. Reggie was kind of a mixture between a goat scorer and like, but had played the game like Lance Stevenson. Like people, yeah. people who never really remembered him playing. Imagine Lance Stevenson with the abilities of like, um, you know, not Michael Jordan. He was not nearly as good as Michael. All-star All-star player, yeah. Yeah. He had the mentality of Lance Stevenson with all-star. That's who Reggie Miller was. He had a little, uh, uh, a watered-down Ron Artest. Yeah, he did. Rodman to him. I mean, People don't remember that. Diluted at 50%, but that was a little (laughs) bit of him. Right. But yeah, so anyways, we knew, everyone knew that if if you got, if you got, if you gave reasons to Reggie, he would go off. So there was news. There was a news report that came out. It hit the, the the paper. And by the way, I found an article online. If you Google it, you can see it. There's one like archived article from the Daily News. I think it, I think it is. But it it hit ESPN. It hit all these places. The news came out that um, this was right before our series. It was one of the many series we had with, with New York. I think it was. I think it was '98. Actually, it was the '98 no, series. It wasn't 98. I actually have the uh, newspaper article in my uh, Evernote and I just found it. Um, it was, uh, it looks like, go keep talking. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm the story that, the story that I have here is postmarked May 7th, 1998. So, okay. and that was yeah. maybe, maybe it wasn't that, but that's the one I, that's the one I'm seeing here, which this makes sense to yeah, me that it would I, be this maybe, time. May eighth, ninety eight. I've got yeah. it too. May eighth, ninety eight. So, he received Reggie received four black roses. I believe is the story, and and on the note was was basically said, "Hey, here's four black roses." Basically, the number of 
the number of wins we're going to, you know, we're going to get. Basically, we're, the Knicks are going to sweep you. This is before the series. And it was signed Spike, Spike Lee. And Reggie came out and it was like, you know, he made ESPN and all this stuff. Well, we actually know the guy who's responsible for that. Spike shall did not, remain I, nameless. Shall remain, name, remain nameless. Spike did not send those roses. It was a buddy of ours. He actually worked for a, flor, a florist company and he would deliver flowers. And he snuck in. He actually got the, the roses. He wrote the note. He came in in his, in his florist garb yeah. and said, yeah, I got, a, I got a delivery for Reggie Miller. He got it. And, and Reggie later said that that was, was motivation. And actually, <laughs> he used that to fuel his, his performance. And actually, I remember that. That was, that was the season, wasn't it, that we beat, we beat the Knicks yeah. and then played and We beat him in Chicago. the semi, yeah, Eastern, yeah. Uh, yeah, the semifinals. Now, my memory is painting back in as you tell the story, and I found the article in my Evernote. I, my memory is hearing that our friend did that who worked for a florist, and um, I remember hearing about that at church and then seeing the news later, So, which made it even more um, uh, just a great story, is that he had told some friends – Hey, I did this. And it was like, Oh, that's funny. Ha ha ha. And then it was like, Oh my goodness. It's on NBA on NBC. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and ESPN. Yeah, and yeah. it's becoming a national story. And then Spike was, was, uh, was, was saying, I didn't do that. Um, I have a quote here from that article written by Mark Monteith uh, on uh, May 8th, 1998 quotes Spike as saying, I did not send Reggie Miller anything. I don't know who did that, but it wasn't me. And I want Reggie to know it wasn't me, which is great because you know that the New York fans who were rabid were probably upset at Spike. At Spike. Reggie, <laughs> any bulletin board material. And People don't remember that. The Knicks fans hated Spike during those things. Yeah, they told him they to like, shut don't up. Don't goad him. Don't go to him. Remember yeah. they had this, do you don't remember they had the signs? Him. They had yeah. the signs in, in yeah. the garden with Spike and it had tape over his mouth. It was like, hey, shut yeah. up, Spike. And and um, I'm reading this from the New York Daily News. So this is actually the new one of the big New York newspapers. And w- the same quote, they were like, yeah, Spike said he didn't do it. And Reggie says, well, someone said it. You tell me who. Like he was beyond yeah. mad. And he this, used it. In, in, hi- in hindsight, he probably didn't even care that he, he said care. it. He just, yeah. he wanted he to believe that was yeah. him. He used it. He used, he was a psychological. He really was an art of war psychological guy too. He would do things pre-game. Um, you know, Michael was like that. Kobe was like that. George, I mean, Reggie had that same mentality, man. Where he, if he smelled blood or in the yeah. water, he would destroy you. Um, it says here that a Market Square Arena security official backed Lee's claims saying a young man of about 20 uh, had tried to deliver the flowers, which were packaged in a cheap plastic container on Monday, gave no identification, saying he represented a florist and refused to leave them when uh, told uh, Miller was not at the arena. The man returned the next day and reluctantly left the flowers when told he couldn't give them personally to Miller. that's so good that's so good oh that is great that is a great story and i don't and i and i know the person too and he's told me the story as well so it's just funny especially if you know the guy because he is uh he is hysterical but i i do have to say just because you guys were talking about reggie always getting you know riled up and he did different things 
one thing that I remember from watching the uh, the winning time documentary, the 30 for 30, was Mark Jackson, you know, would say, I'd pull the paper out and be like, hey, Reggie, they're saying this about you. They're saying yeah. that. Oh, yeah. You. And it, they were trying to do whatever they could to just get Reggie amped up. And, you know, Didn't Magic. Benner do that? Yeah, Benner. Bill, but David Benner do that? David Benner, yeah, like, before. He would before. comb that. He would yeah. comb newspapers and the opposing team's newspapers for something to rile him up. And and every game he would he would give him that's the famous thing where Reggie would get in his face and put yeah. a finger in his face and like cuss him out like he yeah. they they knew the team figured out how to how to push Reggie's buttons man because they knew he he would just ball out when he was and mad. The, the the Knicks fans too they had such respect for Reggie you remember the last game he had in the oh, yeah. it was a standing ovation didn't they give him a jersey and third like Knicks jersey in the number of thirty one stuff like that. And, and the great picture, and I used to have it in my room. I, I might, might, might be in my parents' house or maybe I have it somewhere, but someday I'd like to get it uh, made again and reframed is that picture. And, and I can't recall what game it was from on the baseline, game, on the baseline, he's shooting the three and the that's, entire crowd. That's 98. Just, that's 98. That Absolutely. Yeah, it was the, the entire crowd is just putting their hand on their head or over their eyes. Cause they know he's going to, he's going to hit it. And of course he did. And it was a big shot or whatever else, but, and even spikes in that picture too, just with like a, his hands, hands on, on his head, head. like yeah. unbelievable. How did he get them all? It's great times. Well, this has been fun guys. I've really enjoyed listening to your guys. Appreciate it, Alex. And, and, and I felt like I was, you know, part of the nineties listening to you guys talk and, you know, like I said, I, we could do this for a lot longer, but I know that, you know, the time limit has come upon us, but I would love maybe to do this again in the future, kind of go back and reminisce on some more things that we haven't, love to. haven't discussed yet. But uh, with that being said, you guys are on Twitter. So, Brett, go ahead and give your uh, your Twitter handle out if you want people to follow you. Yeah, Brett R. Evans, B-R-E-T-T-R-E-V-A-N-S. All right, and Ryan, I know you're on Twitter as well. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Ryan T. Lloyd. Awesome. Well, guys, it has been great talking about Pacers basketball. And for all of our great Pacer fans on Set in the Pace, we hope you guys enjoyed your education of the rebirth of the Indiana Pacers. Until next time, we'll talk to you all later, Pacer Nation. happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com